Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Podcast episode sixty nine. G'day, I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here today. My guest is Clara Vondrich. She is an account director for Fenton Communications. You can find her on Twitter at Clara C L A R A underscore Vondrich V O N D R I C H. Thank you so much for being here. If you're new, welcome. You can subscribe to this show either in iTunes or if you're using an Android. Um, I prefer Pocket Casts, which is an app, uh, Australian app. It's a fantastic podcast app. I really, really like it. And if you, if you subscribe, this uh, beautiful machine will put a new episode in your phone every week for free. Pretty amazing. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. I'm not hard to find. Thank you very much for all the people that wrote me an email this week. Send Osher email at gmail.com is my address. If you like, you can go to osherginsberg.com and subscribe to the mailing list. I uh, send out a thing every week to let you know about who's on my show. I will never spam you. So, hi. Hope you're well wherever you are in the world. I'm in Amsterdam. I'm here working at think.org, T-H-N-K dot O-R-G. It's uh, where I work. I'm a forum curator here, which I really enjoy. I come here a few times a year and and do that. It's uh, one of the things that I do for a job. I also host The Bachelor in Australia. I do many different things for job. I like that. It's a, it's a lovely day. It's a little light snow outside, which is nice. When I came in last night, the canals were just starting to get a little crusty, not quite iced over, but just a little crusty. It was, it's really lovely. I, I like being here. I like that I get to work in a place that is building the next generation of creative leaders. And um, it's a really exciting school to be a part of. And I'm grateful to be my part, do my part in helping the next generation of leaders uh, come to fruition. And, and come into the light uh, to do their part uh, for the good of us all, which is 
kind of my thing. So this episode, I've just got to be really honest with you. This episode is about uh, climate change. And climate change is something that's super scary for me. I mean, super scary for me. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty freaked out by it. I'm not going to lie to you. But as I don't have the ability to change it myself, I, I can't make it all go away in my own power. I, um, I guess I made a commitment to help people who can help. And that's why I've got Clara on the show today, because while I can't do anything outside of my own sphere of influence and my own choices, how I consume and live in the world, I can help people who can spread a greater message than I can. So that's why Clara's on the show. I was at a conference in October. I heard her ask a question of the speaker, a very challenging question to the speaker at this conference about climate change. And I thought, I've got to talk to her. She's a person who can help. So I tracked her down. She's in New York where she uh, works at Fenton Communications, which is a social change communications agency. It's been going since 1982. Uh, she graciously agreed to talk with me. She's a very intelligent woman. Um, I'm really grateful for her uh, time. I'm really grateful for her time. She was very busy on the day that I spoke with her, which was a, a very heavy day. It was December the 15th in New York, and you hear us talk about what was going on that day. Um, I left it in because I thought it's, you know, you know, I thought it was interesting to hear that we still didn't know what was going on uh, in Sydney that day. Um, we we knew that. Anyway, you'll you'll hear us talk about it. So even though I was scared, I talked to Clara anyway, and she spoke, much to my delight, with great positivity towards a sustainable and prosperous future. And I was very surprised and happy and delighted to hear that it doesn't have to be one or the other, which is awesome news. Which is great news, and uh, that news is echoed around the world. Uh, Davos, the World Economic Forum, Davos starts today, um, and it's the first the first day was absolutely dominated by climate change talk. So, the the tide is changing, pun intended. <laughs> the tide is changing. So, if climate change does confront you, join the club, man. Join the club. But ignoring it will not make it go away. Like herpes, <laughs> it's not going to go away just because we don't want it to be there. Um, we've got to do something about it. It's global warming, not local warming. Um, but that's okay because as you'll hear in this conversation with Clara that uh, there's great possibility and great prosperity yet to come. But we've got to make some moves and we've got to be smart about it and quick about it. <laughs> so please do have a listen to this with an open mind. Do let me know what you think. Let you know what you think about Clara. Let her know that you heard her here on the show at Clara, C-L-R-A, C-L-A-R-A underscore Vondrich, V-O-N-D-R-I-C-H. She's on Twitter. You can find her there. And uh, she was very, very busy with uh, some work that had been done at the UN the day before. So when I asked her at the start, how are we going? Um, that's what we were talking about right before we spoke. So when she, when she says, where are we? When I ask her, where are we? She, she gives me the... Where are we as in where are we now in the realm of climate change rather than where we are on the seventh floor at Fenton Communications? So um, enjoy this conversation and I look forward to your thoughts. How are you, Clara? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm all right. I'm okay. Um, we're recording this on the day of uh, the 15th of December in New York and... Um, so I'm a bit thrown for two things. Number one, that the cops have just entered that siege in Sydney, um, which is really heavy. So 
at this point, neither of us know what's going on, but it's very heavy um, to consider that. And, uh, and two, I'm kind of afraid to talk to you uh, for reasons which we'll speak about later. Well, Can we, you agreed to, we agreed to keep it positive. So yeah, we, well, well, tell us where we are. Well, um, as of last night, after marathon negotiations, the uh, um, UNFCCC negotiators in Lima, Peru, did agree to um, come together and pledge commitments to reduce dangerous climate change. Um, they did lay a good framework leading into Paris 2015. Um, what's most striking about it is that the um, developing nations are finally agreeing to make cuts. This historical barrier between developed and developing nations is falling away, uh-huh. and this is this is really important because it's been such a Achilles' heel of the negotiations over the past 25 years. Yeah, and this has been going on a long time. Yeah, and um, for time memorial, China, India would say, "Listen, you all." developed world, U.S., Europe, you created this mess. We're just trying to develop now. We just want to move forward, and we have every right to do so using the same economic engine that you did. And that economic engine depends on coal, oil, and gas. Um, But the reality is that climate change is having striking impacts today. And it's been enough to convince these countries um, that perhaps um, it's, it's time to make personal commitments for the sake of their people and the world. So for me, it's a huge move forward that India, China, they're all putting commitments on the table and they're willing to move forward. Yeah. it's uh, So I didn't expect that that would be happening while I was here to talk to you. It's striking. This um, this office is pretty fancy. What What is this place? Um, we're now at the New York City headquarters of Fenton Communications. Um, Fenton Communications is a social change communications firm. We only work for causes that we believe in. Um, We are a for-profit business, but at the same time, we have a very clear and um, high bar for clients. And mostly it's um, the panoply of progressive causes. So whether it's environment, um, health, women's rights, LGBT, uh, education, these are some of our most um, popular topics. And it's a great story. My boss, David Fenton, is a um, former hippie who dropped out of high school to work with Abby Hoffman, um, the sort of iconoclast back in the 60s who wrote the book, um, Steal This Book. He was extremely, um, he was a radical populist who, who believed in changing the world. Um, and David Fenton was also of that ilk. And he uh, was a underground reporter. He um, worked to create the first No Nukes concerts here in New York City, which featured Bruce Springsteen and Bonnie Raitt. Um, that actually brought a million people to the streets um, back in the 80s. And um, you know, slowly he realized that the right, the conservative movement in the states, had a very powerful communications apparatus. And he decided that the left needed a similar apparatus. So he created Fenton Communications in 1982 to be that voice. And since that time, he's worked on some of the leading issues um, uh, with respect to climate especially. It's his passion, and that's how the two of us you know, connected. We realized that we were kindred spirits on this issue. Mm-hmm. And um, together, we're trying to support campaigns and clients who are also obsessed with climate change. Well, you, you're in a big fancy office in the big fancy office part of New York City. Clearly, there's a, an economic plus side to spreading 
uh, and I'll, you know, a, a positive word about a positive change in the in the world. You know, it's funny. Uh, the firm used to be the only one of its kind. We used to be um, one. We were the social change communications firm. There were very few others. Um, until probably the 90s and beyond. And so the ecosystem has really gotten busy, and we, we do struggle at times to um, win competitive bids, and it's because uh, other people are realizing that doing good is good business as well. Right. And how did you come to be... Well, let me get this straight first. You're the account director for climate and energy. That's correct. So what keeps you busy doing that job? <laughs> Well, some of the most notable... I've been here only about a year and a half, actually, and I came via a pretty circuitous route. Um, I'm a recovering lawyer who uh, decided that um, I really wanted to make a difference working on climate. It's a passion of mine since probably my late teens when my mom, Olga, uh, she insisted that I read Al Gore's Earth in the Balance. And it was a book that very few people... um, you know, paid attention to, yet it was one of the most, one of the first popular books on climate. Um, I believe Bill McKibben wrote the first one before Al. Um, but it was really prescient. It, it mapped out, you know, all the challenges that have since come to pass and um, really made a clarion call for action then, 25 years ago. And my mom, for whatever reason, is extremely um, farsighted. She's an immigrant from former Czechoslovakia. Her parents were doctors. They were very um, concerned with Uh, nature and the environment. She grew up part-time on a mill where they recycled every last bit of scrap paper and plastic. Nothing was wasted. So she imbued me with this sense of stewardship. And um, so back then, she already knew this issue was going to loom large. And so um, despite the fact that when she first introduced me, I was not yet re- yet ready to pay attention. Yeah, you're a teenager. I was You're a like- teenager. I was concerned with boys and uh, other important topics. But slowly but surely, as I went through um, college and started to focus more on what my career path would be, I decided that that would probably be where I ended up. So um, my first job out of college was actually working for Al Gore, his presidential campaign in 2000. And it was because he was the only one talking about climate. And um, I went to Nashville as a volunteer and was eventually hired to be his Eastern briefing director, which simply meant that when he would make campaign stops on the East Coast, I would provide talking points and background on the people he'd be meeting with. Um, and you know, everyone that was on the campaign, they were mostly Clinton campaign alums, and so they were you know, talking about how we would all you know, have White House jobs when this was all said and done. I was very much looking forward to that, but as we know, um, one hanging Chad probably, you know, stood in the way of that dream. And uh, so after the campaign ended, I um, thought about next steps and decided that law school would be a good trajectory in terms of being able to pick from any number of options going forward. So I did that and um, found out pretty soon after joining a pretty major law firm that corporate law wasn't for me and made the transition um, in 2010 to greener pastures. Well, hang on, hang on a second. Let's just rewind a second. So you tell me about the night of the Bush Gore election. Oh Where gosh. were you? You were, I'm assuming at a big party. I was in Nashville, Tennessee. I'll never forget it. My parents had come down from Virginia to spend, to celebrate. We'd all come down to celebrate together. And we were standing in a square. It was very cold, even though it was Nashville. It was the wintertime um, or late November. And I remember 
it was the stage where Al actually was going to come out and, you know, pronounce victory. And um, we kept waiting for him to emerge. There were just, you know, delay after delay after delay, and the word started coming in that um, there wasn't a clear winner. The moment never came, and for the ensuing, gosh, December, January, two months plus, we were in limbo. Um, and it wasn't until the very end that uh, we we really accepted that it was wasn't happening that that Mr. Gore was not going to be our next president. What did that experience do for the way you saw how the gears of democracy work? Listen, I was just out of college. I didn't have a lot of experience in politics. Um, I'd always counted myself an independent. I didn't necessarily um, believe in the two-party system, but on balance and the more time I spent on the campaign and I learned more and realized that Democrats or the platform generally stood for things that I identified with, um, I became a little bit more partisan. Um, but watching the Supreme Court decide a presidential election was, was pretty tough and realizing that this distinction between the popular vote and the electoral college in the U.S., it still you know, makes my head explode. It, it doesn't, I don't understand why it's not one person, one vote. And uh, that continues to be a huge issue with gerrymandering and different, you know, jurisdictional boundaries between, um, you know, congressional districts. And to this day, Republicans are very clever at creating those lines such that they um, are able to maintain their power once they're incumbent in office. I was talking to my friend in uh, in Amsterdam about this. He's an investment. He's a VC guy. He's you know worried about this and worried about that and worried about you know cultural shifts in Europe. And I said, mate, you're the one with the power. Mm. Companies can make mm. decisions that governments aren't brave enough mm. to make. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. big companies can go like if tomorrow PepsiCo decided that's it. No more high fructose corn syrup, and we're going to limit all our snacks to 100 calories. They could do it. Asher, you're hitting the nail on the head right now. Um, many corporations today have more um, political and economic might than many countries. And that's especially striking in the climate arena. Um, and I struggle sometimes between where I should personally focus my, my efforts on climate, because on one hand, it's the ultimate tragedy of the commons issue. Nobody wants to take responsibility because it affects all of us. And it's really easy to you know, blame someone else or just chalk it up to the fact that this is a collective problem and no one person is responsible. And with collective problems like that, generally governmental intervention is essential. You, know, you need the regulator to step in and say, either let's put a fee on pollution, um, let's, let's hold a company accountable. But that's not happening. And on the flip side, you have corporations that wield so much might and in essence, like you said, could make this call to change the way they do business and with their economies of scale and the fact that they leverage so much of the market could do great things. Um, but for me, I'm still waiting for that day to come with respect to climate. You know, We have these fossil fuel companies that could own the clean energy future if they wanted to. They have so much wealth, so much riches, so much political might, and if they wanted to, they could flip their business model and they could start to really invest in the clean energy future that we all know we have to see. 
You um you had a, a first hand experience with uh, oil companies. Worked on didn't you work on the Deepwater Horizon? I did. That uh, was my segue out of the law firm. It was yeah. It was the National Commission. You were counsel for the National Commission for the Deepwater Horizon spill. Can you? So that means you were on the government's side. Yes. When the Deepwater Horizon spill happened, the president formed a commission to investigate the causes of the spill. And so we appointed a presidential commission that was led by um, former EP administrator Bill Riley and Bob Graham of Florida. Thank you for saying Bill Riley. Yes, William Riley. There's no O in there. There is no O. Let's not be mistaken. And uh, so I was hired among, there were, I believe, eight councils. So it was a completely unique position. Um, And... We were not so much lawyers for the commission, but truly part of the the research investigation and report writing. And in the beginning, many thought that BP may have been simply a bad actor, that they had made mistakes that were unique to the company, that they, together with um, some of the oil contractors, um, Halliburton and um, uh, Anadarko, there were two other parties that were involved, that simply this was a case of some bad apples. However, during the course of our investigation, we we determined that this was a systemic issue. This was an issue that was across the board in the oil industry, particularly in deep water. And it was partially because the deep water oil exploration has just taken off like a rocket over past decades, and regulation hasn't been able to keep pace with the technological advances. And so when you were working with these these other people and you were seeing the oil industry's take on things, what was your uh, what was your opinion on what was going on there? I'm assuming that you had an opportunity to to hear the you know and be in the same room as the other the other yeah, side. The, the commission did do some hearings. Yeah, was it like walking into Mordor? Was it like, oh there it is? No, it was more I mean, listen there was a really strong knee jerk reaction to our, you know, findings that it was a systemic issue. Everybody wanted to point the finger at someone else. And uh, I think, you know, when you sit down with any of these people one-on-one, you realize their humanity and you realize that um, they are probably, um, well, they undoubtedly have families and loved ones and they're not innately bad. However, the culture, um, it's similar to the mob mentality. When you put enough of these kinds of individuals together when the profit motive is the most important thing and you start to cut corners and you start to you know evade um, the safeguards because it's cheaper to do so you're going to run into problems and for me watching this unfold was really tragic and sad because I viewed the oil spill as being a huge opportunity as a huge opportunity to move away from some of these dinosaur industries and invigorate the gulf with something new and I remember telling some of the commissioners of this idea, and they and they just you know did the slightly paternalistic pat on the head. You know that's cute, Clara, um, but this is the lifeblood of the Gulf. Oil is the lifeblood, and it's going to take decades to transition this industry to something more sustainable. Um, but I really believed at that moment it was a teachable one, and the government could inject some capital into worker retraining programs. Um, help people develop truly sustainable jobs and clean energy. Um, But instead, it was more of a doubling down of more of the same. And the commission, to its credit, did come out with a terrific report that focused on how we might make the industry better. And so from there, you came came here. Did they come and find you? Did you come and find Fenton? There was 
another stepping stone in between, I went to work for ClimateWorks Foundation in California, which was an unbelievable experiment, um, during which time I started something uh, called a speaker series, where I would bring in top thinkers from climate and energy. Uh, and one of those was Jim Hansen. And he was he is the grandfather of climate science in the United States in terms of bringing it to the public attention for the first time during the um, congressional hearings in 1988. And at that time, I learned that he was thinking about leaving NASA. And Jim Hansen is somebody that has, you know, for a long time he wanted to focus on his science and he thought that the facts themselves would um, be enough to persuade um, Americans and, and the world of the urgency of this problem. But as the decades wore on, he started to realize that that wasn't happening. And so he became much more outspoken. And he became so outspoken and so almost radical on the issue that many in the scientific community began to feel like he was crossing a line. And so um, he left NASA, and I wanted so much to help him make that transition. He was thinking about starting a think tank at Columbia University, where he would both focus on the science and the communications. And it was through that relationship with Jim Hansen and through that process of helping him transition that I met David, David Benton. Got because it. he too was uh, completely climate obsessed and decided that Jim's uh, legacy was worth fighting for and supporting. So I should, you know, I mentioned it earlier and I'm, we spoke an email before this. I'm actually quite afraid to talk to you today. <laughs> um, because, and I, you know, I've been t I talk a lot about, you know, how I'm, how how I travel through the world on this show, and um, one of the I, I have anxiety. I have a, a, a mental illness. I have anxiety, and Don't my my biggest trigger though. No, it's not. My, I can't get out of bed. I think the world's going to end. Anxiety, and my trigger is climate change, and it's so terrifying that you know I've got a whole team of people that I that I talk with about it now. At least I'm aware of it. At least I'm aware of, like, I'm experiencing an irrational fear reaction to something that it's okay to be afraid of, mm. but not so much that it paralyzes you to stop. How do you begin? Because I think a lot of people might go, this is such a frightening thing, and I know that the way around it means big changes to my way of life. If I just don't talk about it, everything's going to be okay. No, 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 don't, and, or how dare you want to take away my V8? How do you even begin to have a conversation with people who are in that fear reaction, which is completely understandable because it's terrifying. How do you begin to have that conversation? You've really identified a stalking horse of this issue, something that people put up as um, a truism, which isn't, and that is that we have to change our lives radically. And that is that addressing climate change is an economic negative and sacrifice. That is something that conservatives in this country continuously hold up as a reason. In my country too, don't in worry. In your country as well. Oh, yeah. I'm, as a reason not to act. And it's incredibly compelling because, as you say, who wants to give up their Hummer? Who wants to give up their, you know, second home in Aspen? I mean, I don't actually... Have no all the windows open and the heater on. How good is it? Or even on a smaller scale, folks, you know, generally, um, especially in the Midwest of this country, they have to drive to their jobs. You know, yeah. unless you live in a city, there's really not any alternative. It's a very, like you said, rational fear, but it's one that I think has been um, twisted, contorted, turned into something completely false 
because we know now, like I mentioned, that solar and wind power are at cost parity with fossil fuels. We can have clean energy for a similar price. We don't have to sacrifice. And, you know, there are certain issues where I think, um, and they're very controversial, but I do believe that eating less meat is very vital to this this, this it's the reason I've been vegetarian since I was 24. Right. I you mean, know? There's no question that agriculture and current practices are responsible for a third of emissions um, related to deforestation as well. But by and large, we have to stop letting um, the other side win this argument on the basis of economic catastrophe because it's simply not the case. And we see in, in, in places where there are taking a strong stand on climate. For example, in British Columbia, they've had a carbon tax in place for, for several years, and all indicators show that British Columbia's economy is, is prospering and doing better than other Canadian provinces. Um, Germany, for example, has been making you know, steady progress towards meeting its goal of um, deep decarbonization by 2020 while also phasing out nuclear, and it's Germany is the economic powerhouse. It's a manufacturing sector of the world. And so this idea that you have to choose between prosperity and a clean and healthy climate is absurd. And then when we take into account the hidden costs, there are so many hidden costs, and the cost of inaction will be absolutely brutal. Um, We already see it in the superstorms. We already see it in the typhoons. We see it in the droughts that are crippling the breadbasket of California food shortages, um, extreme weather events, flooding. I mean, these costs will be beyond comprehension. So making the short-term investments now in order to avoid those future costs is just common sense. And uh, I'd like to see us start winning the economic argument because all the facts are on our side. And truly, we can have a prosperous future and a clean one, and the two are their mano y mano. So people listening to this, this may be the first time they've considered some of the things that we're talking about mm-hmm. today. And I know, like, for example, in Australia, people are you know, spending a lot of time with family mm-hmm. over, over the summertime. If, if you are at the dinner table conversation and someone pipes up, what are, what are, some, what are some things to keep in mind when you're having that conversation mm-hmm. with your relatives? Because this is where change happens. Change happens when, you, when your uncle tells the racist joke and you say, actually, it's not okay. Mm-hmm. That's where change happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It doesn't happen when your uncle hears from the television, we don't say racist jokes anymore. It's in those person-to-person interactions that people have their minds, their minds opened. Mm-hmm. What are some things that you could say to the very hair-trigger relative that we all have? I actually have a personal experience, not with a relative, but with a dear family friend. Um, Brad Johnson is the dad of my best friend, Nikki, who I've known since second grade. And, you know, we come together... Uh, Probably once a year around the holidays, I'll come visit Nicole at her house. And um, Brad is a West Point graduate, former colonel in the U.S. Army. The West Point, so let me just point out, West Point is the military academy. It's like the Harvard University yes. Of, yes. of military strategy and leadership. And if you're a West Point graduate, you can walk down into Wall Street and go, Hi, everyone. I'm here. <laughs> it's cool. Who it's- wants to hire me? <laughs> Yeah, something like that. And so Brad is somebody that is a Fox News watcher. He um, has always been a steady, steadfast Republican. For him, ever since I brought up the issue of climate change, you know, 20 years ago, he would sort of 
wave his hand and say, this is a liberal hoax, Clara, how could you be so brainwashed? And over time, you know, I've, I've watched his arguments change and shift. So whereas in the past, climate change wasn't happening, now it's climate change is happening, but it's not human caused. And that's been a seismic shift. And whenever we get together, you know, I try to focus on now the economic arguments for action. You know, the fact that there are um, jobs, sustainable jobs that can protect and um, help families like his continue to be successful in the future. There are um, whole industries that can be created and, um, you know, that will be engines for the future. And he, he resonates with economic arguments like that. You know, I think that when I try to talk about the science, it's very easy for him to brush that aside and just say that there's, there's, um, there's actually not agreement. Um, somehow, despite the fact that we know there's 97% consensus among climate scientists, um, many on the other side continue to dispute that. So I found that hitting him over the head with science um, isn't effective. What is effective is starting to talk about um, the economic benefits. And then everybody can also relate to, um, you know, I did get him to concede last time we spoke, which was just about two weeks ago, that particulate matter from coal burning, that's not a net positive for, for folks living in the area. Um, asthma rates are on the rise, and he agreed with me. He agrees that um, on balance, you know, if you can have clean energy, that's a plus. One of our clients recently was a, was a foundation called Wallace Global. We don't have to talk about your clients. Well, it's very important that we talk about our clients okay. because they are changing the world. Um, Wallace Global Fund is led by Ellen Dorsey, who is um, a student of the apartheid era. She um, is a PhD and believes that social change happens through movements, movement building. And she decided that she would apply the lessons of the apartheid movement to the fossil fuel uh, challenge. She started to support college campuses um, and calling on those college campuses their, their endowments, their, um, their leadership to divest their funds from fossil fuels. And it started with coal because coal has been on the decline for years. It seemed like an easy place to start. So within a couple of months, there were active student movements uh, around the country. And then Bill McKibben, who is the founder of 350.org and the author of the first popular book on climate change, the end of nature, he thought, wow, this is a neat idea. Why don't we expand it to all fossil fuels? And so he took on the road this tour called Do the Math, where he essentially um, went around the country and made the case for um, fossil fuel divestment. And it went kind of like this. Science shows we've got to keep the bulk of oil, gas, and coal in the ground if we're going to keep temperature change to a reasonable level. And that means that a bunch of those resources that fossil fuel companies count on their books are actually stranded and can't be burned. They have no economic value. So as a result, people invested in fossil fuels are actually making a really bad investment choice. But This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. What we've seen happen is that this movement has now spanned to over 500 college campuses in the U.S. We have um, similar sister movements in Australia and Europe and the U.K. And what we're seeing is um, this starting to have implications for financial markets. Um, You had the... um, Uh, The Bank of England recently commissioned a report to investigate um, the likelihood of stranded assets and this notion of the carbon bubble. You have have Deutsche Bank, you have um, PricewaterhouseCoopers, you have other credible and non-environmental organizations coming out and recognizing that... um, that we do, the market does have a carbon bubble that will ultimately burst and fortunes will be lost. And just this past September, I was so proud to be part of um, Wallace's keystone moment where we unrolled uh, 180 institutions that have collectively come together to uh, commit to divesting their fossil fuel assets and reinvesting in the clean energy future. And those that came together in September, um, they collectively control 50 billion in assets. So while that's not, you know, that's not a, a market disruptor, it definitely starts to show yeah. um, that we're onto something. And so this movement, Divest Invest, has really captured the popular uh, imagination, and you'll only see it continue to grow going forward. And folks can check out divestinvest.org for more information to see how that movement is building. Speaking of divestment. Uh a probably he was the wealthiest person of all time, John D. Rockefeller, uh, who started Standard Oil. Mm-hmm. If you've seen There Will Be Blood, you'll know what Standard Oil is. Um, he had, I think, he died three hundred and thirty-six billion dollars to his name or something like that. But he started a fund. He became a philanthropist. But his family, who I'm guessing managed that fund, they divested as well. Is that correct? The Rockefeller Brothers Fund was one of our. Um, key signatories for the September initiative I mentioned. And we did take uh, Stephen Hines, who's the president of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, on sort of a media junket, as well as Valerie um, uh, Rockefeller. And it was stunning. Uh, One of my favorite quotes from that period was, you know, it's not that we ran out of whale oil. It's that, you know, we innovated petroleum. And similarly, we're not going to run out of petroleum we're going to innovate our ways out of it. Um, but it's so striking. John D. Rockefeller, the founder of Standard Oil, um, his own family is getting out because they see the writing on the wall. God, you make such an amazing... Oh, I'm fascinated. There's a film coming out with Chris Hemsworth called In the Heart of the Sea, but way before the film, like 10 years ago, I read the book In the Heart of the Sea, and it's all about this 
full-on industry that the lamps of the of Britain, the lamps of London, were lit with whale oil, and these and the lamps of New York were lit with whale oil, and these guys would go on these horrendous, life-threatening missions and, and just hunt these huge, beautiful beasts down. And you're exactly right. It's not like they no longer needed to light lamps. They just found a different way to do it. Mm-hmm. That's such a full-on comparison because it was so destructive what they were doing, not only to humanity, so many people lost their lives doing it, but also to, to the ecology. Ecosystems. To the ecology. Absolutely horrendous. And, you know, back then, I'm sure it wasn't the environmental arguments that won the day. I yeah. think there were probably a few, you know, would-be greenpeacers out there, you know, talking about how we should preserve these magnificent creatures, but ultimately it was the economic arguments that won, and that's yeah. what's happening now, again, yeah. with the sun, wind, and water becoming as cheap as fossil fuels. I mean, if you can have something as cheap without the pollution, I mean, it's no freaking brainer even if you don't believe in climate change that's the and and this is the thing i think that excites me the most unfortunately better place didn't work uh which was shia gussie's uh electric cars that had the battery swap and he the line that always stuck with me was there are billions of dollars to be made in saving the world that's exactly right so there's this myth that someone like me wants to walk into a coal coal powered plant and switch it off tomorrow right right now That'd be nice, mm-hmm. but I'm a realist, mm-hmm. and that's not going to work. I like hot water. I like electric light. Mm-hmm. And until I can find a way to power them without coal, well, I'm going to need coal. But there's going to have to be what, – what, you know, when you're talking to this person who thinks that the economy will just get dist- – especially in Australia where mineral resources is – that's what we do mm-hmm. – what would you say to someone who says, you know, you want me to live in the Stone Age? You want me to go back to the Depression? What would you say to that person? Last time I checked, Germany's lights were on. <laughs> this is the future, man. Uh, we, we have an opportunity now to, you know, go full steam ahead into the future. Or we can stay mired in the past. And I think that a lot of innovators, Silicon Valley um, and around the world are, you know, making the clear choice. And... What's stunning especially is that the clean tech sector, which has been historically volatile, um, from people I know in the investment community, the returns are, are pretty stellar these days. Um, Tesla Motors, I mean, their, their stock growth has been just um, unreal. And similarly, Solar City, other major um, public, publicly traded companies, they're doing very well. Meanwhile, ExxonMobil has been um, basically de- in decline. Um, my understanding is that... Uh, their um, their profits are down. We just saw this huge uh, story, glut of stories um, in the recent months about the oil prices essentially crashing. And while that may not be good for renewables in the near term, um, because the cheaper oil is, the more people will drive, um, what we're seeing is a, a, a decline in the political power of these companies. There was an oil tycoon here in the U.S., um, I'm forgetting his name, out of Nebraska, who lost a third of his wealth um, in just the past few months. And um, so if you're an investor, again, the proof is in the pudding. Do you want to invest in a declining industry or do you want to invest in the rocket forward industries of the future? And um, I'd really like to see ultimately an economy that isn't based on growth for growth's sake. I think that we know that um, GDP and uh, a constant um, you know, increase in that over time is not sustainable. And I think that people that are exploring alternative uh, indices of economic prosperity are really onto something. Um, and like a happiness index? Like a happiness index. You know, there's 
clearly um, a lack of correlation, and it's been proven time and again, between happiness and wealth. I think if we're going to save this planet and if we're going to save ourselves, that's another really important distinction. It's not about the planet. The planet will be just fine. Um, its systems are resilient. They'll bounce back eventually. It's, it's humans who are at risk. It's, it's us. It's us. There's a really broad shift that is uh, hopefully going to occur where we recognize that prosperity means something very different from material accumulation and wealth for its own sake. And I'm not sure if you've checked out Naomi uh, Klein's book, um, to, it, This Changes Everything. And in it, she makes a very impassioned case for um, you know, a reformulation of our society to recognize that prosperity means something very different. And she also talks a lot about how you know, our democracy has been captured here um, by special interests. No surprise. I mean, just last week we passed a huge omnibus spending bill for next year, which um, includes new handouts to the rich, new tax breaks, new um, protections for the big banks that we recently, you know, struggled so hard to get out from under the thumb of the recession they caused. Uh, you can't buy elections. Until that happens, I think we're going to continue to struggle. And in the U.S., that's a very big challenge because we continue to increase limits for campaign contributions rather to rein them in. So someone might be listening to this going, well, what does the future without, um, you know, I've only ever known growth as, as an index of, of thing. I've only known uh, the democracy as I know it. I'm too afraid to look at anything else. Um, what is the alternative? What is the other thing that people can do? One interesting development, um, and I think there's a metaphor in there somewhere, I'd have to think about it a little bit more, is the fact that the centralized utility model, you know, where you have a giant power plant feeding a giant utility providing um, power to the whole region, that's slowly falling away, and it's being replaced by something called distributed generation. You're having localized uh, solar arrays, you're having localized wind farms that are powering communities, and there's a self-sufficiency that's coming about um, where you're no longer having to um, you know, depend upon a centralized authority, whether it's a utility or um, a government. You're able to create community for yourself. Technology is, on the one hand, very alienating, but it also brings us together. Um, and a lot of the studies that I've seen lately talk about how one of the most important factors of well-being or measures is your social fabric and your ability to connect with others around you. So um, just like the utility system, centralized utility is giving way to distributed um, generation, I think that humanity is returning to you know, their pockets of community. The idea of having one of Elon Musk's batteries uh, <laughs> in my garage and some of the solar panels on my roof, if I could do that, Tomorrow, I would do it tomorrow. Is that the kind of where we're going? That every home's gonna, every home will have its own little generation plant. Absolutely. My boss David Fenton was just um, actually previewed by uh, Ford Motor Company for a um, video they're creating, and he literally plugs his electric hybrid into his solar panels at his house in Bedford. And while it's not 100% electric, um, it he can get, especially for the you know, local errands that he has to run, 
he can power those all on the sun. And so, yeah, plugging your electric car into your solar panel is the wave of the future. I mean, think about that, free electrons. There's nothing better, and they're clean. There's no fuel cost. I mean, essentially, these projects, once they're built, pay for themselves. And how long do they take to work off their carbon footprint of manufacture? That's a great question, and uh, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. Because that is the thing that's kind of been bugging me a little. Yeah. Uh, I love my, my, the, all the technology that sits around us right now, those microphones, that recorder, that iPad, that iPhone, and I think about, whoa, <laughs> they were all made in a big factory somewhere, yeah. far away. I didn't have to breathe the air coming out of it, but goodness, I wouldn't want to. But, you know, I'm a realist. I live in the modern world. I, I am connected by this, the technology that you said. Um, I personally believe that it is indeed that connection, uh, that when someone uh, who's on, in a Facebook group that, you know, I'm a part of says, hey, so my house in the Philippines is uh, blown over. Um, how about you stop driving that big truck over there in America? Uh, oh, yeah, OK. You know, there's, it's 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 called global warming, not local warming. Exactly. <laughs> you know. Exactly. And I think you know, I try to do my bit. I don't eat meat for the very reasons that we spoke about before. I drive an electric car. I I try to ride my bicycle wherever possible, and I buy carbon offsets for the things that I can't. Mm -hmm. And that's how I go to bed at night. Yeah. Listen, you're exactly right. Uh, the manufacturing process for solar panels, for example, is one of the dirtiest out there. Uh, there were some stories in the New York Times last year about the, the waste and how in China they were just pouring it onto agrarian fields and who knows what kind of impacts for the, the crops they're growing. At the same time, it's progress, not perfection. We have to keep moving forward. Those manufacturing processes will improve over time. We'll start to use um, more sustainable materials. But for that to be an argument against going solar, we can't have that. Um, we have to continue to progress away from fossil fuels. The Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. And I'll repeat it again. The fossil fuel age isn't going to end because we ran out of fossil fuels. It's going to be because we innovated our way out of it. And the fact is, that's not a future success story. It's a now story. We have that power now. The combination of sun, wind, and water, it's... It's here. It can power the majority of our economy, and the rest that we can't at this point will be powerable in the future. As grid storage improves, as the grid becomes more sophisticated, it's all here now. The only problem is the leviathan power of the fossil industry in blocking progress. And again, this kills me because if they were prescient and you know were serving their best interest, and that of their shareholders, by the way, they would be transitioning in a very real way, not tokenism, buying a solar plant here or there, but in a very real way in the clean energy future. They could own it if they wanted to. And you mentioned earlier, you mentioned at the start of our conversation that when you were dealing with uh, the lawyers on the other side of the Deepwater Horizon mm -hmm. School, you're like, as Wayne Coyne would say, they're just humans with wives and children. These people like to go to the beach. These people like a holiday. I'm sure they've got a house in Amagansett. You know, <laughs> I'm sure they want to protect their livelihood as well. Their kids and their grandkids. Yeah. And not to mention, yeah, I mean, it's just such a win-win. It's such a no-brainer. You, you have these technologies that don't put out local air pollution, that don't have carcinogenic impacts, that don't, you know, raise rates of asthma, cancer, and emphysema in your neighborhood. I mean, these are just so obvious, and yet mm. somehow the other side has man managed to prevail on the communications debate for a long time. So, but this is, you know, back to what we were talking about before. It's people, I, 
I, I feel that, you know, people are experiencing just a fear reaction. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. an enormous paralyzing fear reaction. And their, their, their response to the fear reaction is, is either anger or I'm not listening, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, yeah. uh, passing my truck. Uh, let me, you know, turn the fire on. I think you're right, but there's also something else at work, and that's a tribalism. Yeah. And, um, you know, a real sense of wanting to um, remain in good graces with your tribe. And there's been some great research in this regard by a guy named Dan Kahan, uh, or Dan Kahan, sorry, um, over at Yale. And he's found that, you know, the bulk of folks that dispute the signs of climate change um, do so because they hear from their friends and neighbors and their, you know, local politicians that this isn't happening. And they might be exposed to contrary information, but they have selective blinders and they tune it out because the cost of breaking with their tribe is too big. Yeah, there are folks that I think react with fear, but there are also folks that just don't even let it in. Yeah. And how do you permeate that? Again, we've seen that the science, the facts, they're not sufficient. I really think at this point um, you're going to have to win on the economic arguments. Yeah. You're going to have to win on the, the human health impacts. You're going to have to win on um, the fact that, guys, it's a no-brainer. We can have clean, sustainable jobs for you and your kids. Um, and it doesn't matter if you believe in climate change or not. It's actually yeah. pretty irrelevant. Because we are... You know, you just have to look out the window and you can see the effect of... Uh, I read a very interesting book by a guy by the name of Jeremy Rifkin um, called sure. uh, The Zero Marginal Cost Society, uh, which is about the decline of capitalism and, <laughs> um, you know, what free energy or near-free energy and free manufacturing or near-free manufacturing will do to, to this you know, society we live in. And, you know, with this free energy, and, but, you know, then he draws the argument that, and now here we are, there's, what, three oil companies? Because something like, there's not many. We're all buying... consolidated industry. Yeah, we're all yeah. buying our, our energy from the same guy. Russia and America may rattle sabers at each other, but they buy their oil off the same guy. Is that, is that a part of it? Listen, I'm not an expert on geopolitics, um, but I have no doubt in my mind that... Um, the major fossil fuel companies control our political system. Um, and we've seen that time and again through the 500 billion in subsidies they receive annually. Um, the richest industry on the planet receives 500 billion in subsidies from government. Wrap your mind around that. Hmm. Wrap your mind around that. It's really tough to, to bust open a monopoly, you know, and that's essentially what we're, we're facing now because you have this consolidation among all the big companies. And um, it's similar to the big banks here in the U.S. You know, you've had just such a aggregation of power in these few, and um, there's, they're lawless. They don't have to follow the rules because they control the rules of the game. They set them. Um, and similarly, um, unless somebody really brave starts to stand up, and I wish we had an Elizabeth Warren of oil politics. Elizabeth Warren is um, a progressive senator who I'm hoping will run for president. She gave a tremendous speech uh, in front of the Senate um, in response to this omnibus bill and the fact that it includes uh, these handouts to Citibank. And she, she, she listed this laundry list of all these senior governmental officials that had come from Citibank. It was this old boys club, 
all sorts of, um, you know, nepotism and um, cronyism, and that's the reality we, we face today. And yet the bill, despite this impassioned speech, got passed. And, uh, you know, you have these brave lights that come up every now and again, but ultimately their voices never seem to cut through. There's always more power on the other side. And that's why money in politics is so bad here in the US. And this is why the divestment thing is the idea? Well, the divestment thing is amazing because it doesn't rely on government intervention. It's something that um, investors are doing on their own. And that way, they're starting to move the markets. It kind of goes back to your point about how governments um, really may not be the leverage point in all of this, that it's really business Mm. and similarly markets. Um, And so when you have uh, the utility sector being downgraded by by Moody's. When you have ExxonMobil's profits starting to diminish over time and their return on investment dropping, you start to feel a sense of optimism that things are changing. Um, and again, those folks that have chosen to divest and invest, their returns are doing great. Uh, Wallace Global Fund happily reports every year that their divested portfolio is outperforming the market and they expect that that trend will continue. So what happens, we just had the G20 in Brisbane, little Brisbane where I grew up, this cow town that I grew up in had the G20. I was there, uh, it was nuts that they were all there. But right before the G20, uh, China and the US shook hands on something. What happened there? Why is that important? A bilateral deal between China and the US has long been held out by environmentalists as the holy grail on climate because we've watched this international negotiation falter for decades. And when you have the two biggest carbon emitters in the world coming together, you set the stage for other countries to follow suit. Because when you have the two biggest market players taking these steps, then what are you gonna do? Just sort of live in your bubble? No. So that creates an incentive for all the other countries to put in place similar regulations. Now, there's no question that what the US and China agreed to was, not sufficient to get to where we need to go, but the fact that China, the biggest um, now emitter, it surpassed US several years ago, has admitted that it has an addiction to fossil fuels and is essentially willing to go into rehab for it, that's a huge deal. Um, because they were for so long you know, making the case that as a developing country that is only now coming into its own, they had every right to, to make these Um, you know, continue business as usual and grow their economy. But they're choking in Beijing. The people in China are, you know, starting to stand up and revolt because the pollution is so bad. And I think the government there in, you know, for very pragmatic reasons to keep that stability, they've realized they have to start making cuts to emissions. What is amazing about China, though, is that they have the situation where they can can turn the coal off, and they have in the past. Mm-hmm. They've just gone, okay, that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to ration the heat uh, because, you know, there's economic people in town. We want to have blue skies. So coal power's off for a week. Listen, I often pray for a benevolent di- dictatorship. And <laughs> that's essentially what we have right now happening um, in China. You have, uh, it's true, their command control economy means that government doesn't have to go through the messy stream of politics. If they make a decision, they make a decision mm-hmm. and they can implement it. You know, here in the U.S., it's a completely different story. Although, for you know, 
the president recently committed $3 billion um, to the Green Climate Fund that will essentially um, help developing nations leapfrog some of the old technologies that we've dealt with. Um, that has to be subject to the democratic process at home. Congress is already chafing at the bit, saying that there's no way in hell they're going to allow that $3 billion to be allocated. So, again, China definitely has a, a real benefit, like you say, in, in its slightly... Despite their, you know, questionable human rights record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people listening, like me, may be feeling a bit overwhelmed about all this. Mm -hmm. We're talking about massive players. We're talking about billion-dollar funds. We're talking mm -hmm. about governments. We're talking about humongous multinational corporations. So what is somebody sitting on a train or sitting in their house, cleaning their dishes, listening to this in their headphones? What's something that they can do? Start with your own investments. Um, we all have something that we can divest. If you, um, I'm not sure how it works in Australia, but we have retirement funds here that if you work for a company. Yeah, we have a superannuation fund, it's called. Okay, yeah. similar. Um, I recently called uh, a financial advisor and told him that I wanted to divest my 401k. And which is your retirement which fund. Is my retirement fund. And um, so I'm, I've begun that process. I should be divested. I mean, my poultry <laughs> savings. Um, but still, it gives you a great sense of accomplishment and agency when you're able to start making choices aligned with your values. And we all have, as consumers, choices. I mean, you are a perfect model and case in point that you haven't eaten meat in 20 years. I mean, that is one of the biggest things you can do. And I understand that it's a touchy topic and not everyone is ready to go there. But for folks that are concerned, there are so many options. And then, you know, despite my frustration at government and the glacial pace and the fact that there's so much money and cronyism, I still think it's essential that we put pressure on our, on our politicians. And we do that um, with, you know, you can do it in very simple ways, online petitions, you can write your congressman, your senator, but there's also a growing sense, as we've seen in the U.S., that, you know, hitting the streets, like going back to sort of that... Um, people power mm. is making waves. 400,000 people in the streets for a climate march. Just this past Saturday in New York City, we had, um, I believe, like 50,000 people protesting the egregious, um, you know, police brutality that we've seen happen in this country. Um, and we have a resurgence of people exercising their political clout by coming together in the streets demanding action from their leaders and you know you can only leaders can only ignore that for so long so what about we talked about investments what about just day to day what's something that someone can do day to day so they oh, can man there's feel so many things this? you can do um i ride my bike everywhere i have a city bike membership i don't have a car anymore and i get it i'm lucky because i live in a city with amazing public transportation um but you can there are so many simple things. Turn out your lights. Switch out your incandescent light bulbs for either LEDs or compact fluorescence. Um, you know, if you have the means, do start to retrofit your home with solar panels or ground geothermal. Here in the city, you can become a member of Ethical Electric. I get, um, I know that my electricity is sourced from clean, from from sun and wind. Um, here in New York City, you can also um, the only challenge we have with, with the renewable energy is the gas system. Um, in Brooklyn, where I live, I can get all my electricity sourced by Ethical Electric, which guarantees that your electrons are coming from the sun and the wind. 
However, on the natural gas side, I don't have an alternative right now for cooking or heat, but that's coming. Um, there's some really exciting initiatives uh, here, in, here in New York about geothermal and making sure that we can start to transition away from gas. And everything you've just said, though, does offer cost benefit mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I don't pay a car bill. I don't pay a car loan. I don't have insurance. Um, that's a lot of savings annually. And gosh, the added benefit of being able to get your workout in on the way to work. I mean, sometimes you can't hit the gym. Oh, mate, when I uh, am in Australia doing Bachelor and I ride uh, my bike to work and back, it's an 18-kilometer, what's that, 12-mile ride? It's, it's a 12-mile ride over seven Sydney bridges mm. from uh, the beach in inland. Uh, when I ride my work bike to work and back, I can eat Anything, Anything I want. Anything you want. Exactly. I'll have another, give me another slice of pizza, vegan pizza. You can eat whatever you like. It's my stylist, the, the wardrobe lady at work, is like, I oh, will take the pants in. The moment I, <laughs> moment I stop that, though, trouble. Yeah, I do try to, I do, you know, but, you know, there's always something more that I can do. But at some point, you know, what, is, what does my brother say? Do, I, I do my best. I do what I can with what I have, mm-hmm. where I am mm-hmm. in the society I live in. I love that. That's, that's what Making I, everything relative. Yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely true. Every day we have choices. And um, I feel better when um, I make choices that are aligned with my values. And the times that I slip, you know, I don't beat myself up. Mm. You know, I, I pick myself up and I move on. Um, and there's no question that we still are constrained by the society we live in and the choices available to us. You know, I do fly. I do travel. Um, and... Uh, over time, we're going to have alternatives as these clean technologies ramp up. And that just reminds me of one of the most common arguments against the divestment movement, and it's one that Harvard's president, Drew Faust, has used um, in, in making the case that, that Harvard won't divest. What she says is, listen, I drive my car, I heat my home, I use fossil fuels. We all do. So to divest our investments from those fossil fuels would be hypocritical. That's crazy town. Making choices individually is not the same thing as as running the system. And we are constrained by where we live. And for me, the oil companies have truly, you know, created, have rigged the system. And so making an individual choice can't be on par with that. It's just simply not comparing apples to apples. I I do feel uh, the moment you start talking about the oil companies this uh, or the oil companies that, people automatically assume, oh, she must be wearing a tinfoil hat. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. And and we need to come up with better language uh, to to address that. Um, But it's, again, it's also calling a spade a spade. Yeah. I mean, there's no question that these are some of the most lucrative companies in the world there's no question they are the biggest companies in the world ExxonMobil is the biggest company in the world they they are and it's it's a really tough linguistic (laughs) and sort of logical look as a recovering lawyer you've done really well today I'm I'm really impressed so you know can can we leave people on a on a high note can people listening walk away from this going ah all right absolutely uh the clean energy revolution is here now um we have an amazingly bright future ahead um, if we continue on this trajectory. We've seen in the past few years this divestment movement flourish. We've seen the People's Climate 
movement come into its own. We've seen US and China create a deal, a historic deal to start curbing their emissions. We've seen progress in Lima during the COP20 that just took place. We are on a trajectory that's very, very positive. The only question is whether we'll be able to do it in time. Thank you so much for your time today. You're so welcome. Uh, this it's my been, pleasure. I'm going to take your photo now. Okay. All right, let's do this. Awesome. So that's Clara Vondrich. You can find her on Twitter at Clara, C-L-A-R-A underscore Vondrich, V-O-N-D-R-I-C-H. Find her on Twitter. Let her know you heard her here. As you heard, we can all do something today. We can do something about climate change because it is the choices that we make in our wallets well outside of and sometimes more powerful than the choices we only get to make every few years with our votes that make all the difference. How we spend our money is, in my opinion, can speak just as loud as how we vote on a ballot because companies are so large, corporations are so large, they can make shifts where governments can't. So, you know, I hope this hasn't been too full on for you. Um, I won't lie to you, it was pretty full on for me, but I think it's important. I think it's important that uh, we start really talking about this kind of thing and what opportunity there is in this situation that we're all going through. Every single one of us, every one of us is going to go through this. So I'm grateful you're all here with me because I really am. I really, really am. So thank you for being a part of the show. I'm really stoked that you're here. I'll see you next week. If you need anything, send me an email. I told you about that stuff before. Subscribe. I'll turn up here next week again. Thank you so much for your time because your time is valuable and I'm grateful you chose to spend it doing this. Until next week, be kind. Look after yourself. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.